Lord Jesus Christ, the light is you. Shine your light upon us today. May we not miss it. May we not ignore it. But may we welcome it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you. When I was in the fourth grade, I had this really sweet pair of Adidas shoes. And I had a really great idea. Because I love those shoes so much, why not start an Adidas club? Now, lucky for me, my two best friends also had sweet Adidas shoes. And so we formed that Adidas club. And let me tell you, it was legit. Well, there was this kid named Dan who really wanted to be a part of the Adidas club. Problem was, Dan didn't have Adidas shoes. Truly, we just didn't like Dan. And so even had Dan's mom gone out and bought Dan a pair of Adidas shoes, I can tell you we would have not allowed him into the Adidas club. You see, in our very small nine-year-old way, we enjoyed being exclusive. We enjoyed being on the inside, because being on the inside inherently means someone else is on the outside. I regret that a lot, because I wonder, and I think I know, what it felt like for Dan. This morning, we continue on with our four-part series on the story of Ruth. This story is a powerful telling of the gospel message, which has a deep connection to the themes of Christmastide and to Epiphanytide, as we will see. Today is the Feast of Epiphany, and for the next six weeks, we find ourselves in this peculiar season where we remember how God called three magi from far off and brought them near enough to the Son of God to worship. And not just to worship in word, but to worship in deed, presenting this child with gifts of royalty. And this was a symbol of the truth that the light of God, symbolized in a shining star, was drawing all people to himself. This theme of being far off and yet being brought near It's pictured for us beautifully in this story of Ruth. And this morning, we're going to jump into the story at chapter 2. But before we do so, I want to play the highlight reel for us for chapter 1 so we can recap. Well, the book opens up in chapter 1, verse 1, saying, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, as I said last week, this famine was likely due to God's judgments upon the people of Judah for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. This happened over and over again, habitually so, in the time of the judges and beyond. Now, because of that famine, this woman named Naomi with her husband Elimelech, along with their two sons, they sought refuge in the land of Moab, across the Dead Sea to the east. But some tragic things happen in Moab. First of all, Elimelech dies, the husband and father Then Malon and Kilion, the two sons, they marry two Moabite women, which was not lawful according to the covenant. And then 
both of them die. Which meant that Naomi was left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, all three of whom had no one to provide for them. Eventually, Naomi decides to go back to Judah because she hears God had restored food to the land. Now, her daughter-in-law, Orpah, she makes the smart choice to go back to Moab to find a new husband and to start a new life. There's no sense in going with Naomi. But Ruth, she decides to go with Naomi against logic and against hope into what would be a destitute future in all senses of that word. Now, it wasn't that Ruth was stupid. It wasn't that Ruth was throwing her life into the wind. No, Ruth marked the moment that Ruth decided to go with Naomi. It was more than that. It was a moment of conversion, as I said. For Ruth, she was geographically, as the narrative shows us, and spiritually, leaving behind her pagan roots in order to embrace a new life, the life of faith of the God of Naomi's ancestors. For Naomi, what we see at the close of chapter 1 is a woman uh, so feeling so utterly betrayed by God, she wanted to change her name. And yet a good argument could be made that the suffering Naomi was experiencing was due to the sin of her husband, the sin of her sons, and by implication, of her. But at the end of chapter 1, we get a hint of what will happen in the the coming chapters by recognizing Naomi and and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, the Hebrew word, literally means house of bread. Now, ironically, God had taken bread away from the house of bread through a famine. But now we see God is redeeming the name of the town house of bread. So today, as we continue to trace the theme of God's grace through the tapestry of this beautiful story, we should be asking the question and looking for, what else is God going to redeem? So we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them. This is what verse 1 says. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So, text is quite clear. This man is not a relative, a direct relative of Naomi, but a relative of her late husband. Boaz and Elimelech belong to the same clan, which chapter 1, verse 2, had already mentioned as the Ephrathites. Now, as you probably know, the nation of Israel was divided up into 12 tribes based upon the 12 sons of Jacob. Well, within each tribe were various clans of kin, And so the Ephrathites were a clan within the tribe of Judah. And so what this essentially means is that Boaz and Elimelech share an extended family within that tribe of Judah. And what we have to understand and what we will indeed see in the next chapters is that loyalty to your kin is incredibly important in this society. Well, the text calls Boaz a worthy man. Now, that English translation doesn't really get at what the Hebrew is trying to convey. And what the Hebrew is trying to convey is that Boaz is both a man of honor and status in society, and also that he's a man of honorable character. As as we'll learn pretty quickly, he's a landowner in Bethlehem, but he's also 
righteous. Continuing on in verses 2 and 3. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, lest we forget the very important detail that Ruth is out of place, verse 2 reminds us she's a Moabite. Nonetheless, Ruth goes out into the field to glean, which simply means she's gathering up from the grain that has been cut down by the reapers. Now, we see here another instance of Ruth's character. We saw it in chapter 1. Here we see it again. Ruth doesn't just sit around waiting for provision. Instead, she takes initiative to get to work in whatever way she can find for provision for herself and for Naomi. But a question we need to ask is, why is Ruth allowed to go out into the field and glean it all? She didn't own the farmland. She's not from Bethlehem. She's not even from Judah, right? Well, God in His compassion and mercy had made provisions in the law itself for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, and yes, even for refugees and immigrants. For example, God commanded in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Instead, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So when Ruth goes out to glean... Even as a foreigner, she is taking part in a mechanism which God had knit into the law for the working of justice and the provision for the needy. Now, despite the law requiring this, clearly at the time, the law was not always obeyed, especially in the time of the judges. And why else did God send a famine to Judah except that the law wasn't being obeyed, perhaps this very part of it was not being obeyed. Therefore, Ruth, uh, verse 2 says that Ruth hoped to glean after reapers who feared the Lord and obeyed His law. In other words, who would be kind to her, because not every reaper would. Then the text says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now we should see the irony here. God's sovereignty is at work. Ruth didn't happen to come anywhere. God is at work. Continuing on in verses 4 to 7. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man, whose young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered him, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean, glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz leaves the town of Bethlehem proper and comes out to the fields which he owns. And he greets the reapers who work for him. 
And immediately Boaz notices that there is this strange young woman in his field. And so he inquires to the manager of his field, who is she? And so the foreman tells him that she's the foreigner who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now evidently, Ruth must have approached this foreman and asked if she could gather up after the reapers in accordance with the law. And obviously, the foreman had said yes, because that is what we find Ruth doing. And then the foreman emphasizes to Boaz, he volunteers this very important detail. She had been gleaning with great diligence since the early morning without hardly taking a break. And so for the third distinct time, we get a window into the quality of Ruth's character. In verses 8 and 9, Then Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz speaks to Ruth, and the very first thing he says to her is, don't go anywhere. Stay here. Now, why is that? The way this scene appears is that Naomi, or that Ruth, has her back to Boaz, and she is, in fact, beginning to walk away from his field. And so it's quite possible that in the moments before Ruth so pro or Boaz so providentially arrived, something had happened which caused Ruth to feel uncomfortable enough that she picked up and began to leave. And from what Boaz says next, we can make a reasonable estimation of what that might have been. You see, as a foreign, husbandless woman, Ruth is 100% vulnerable. She's at the mercy of the men in the field around her who could do pretty much anything they wanted without reprisal. And so while we don't know the nature of the offense, it's likely that Ruth was harassed in some way, whether verbal or physical or sexual. And so we might not see it at first glance, but what this turns out to be is a bit of a me too moment for Ruth. And rather than downplaying it, Rather than minimizing it or disbelieving her or joining in on the assault, Boaz believes her. You see, Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz knows God's heart for the vulnerable, and he stands up for her. And so he says, don't leave. Stay in my field. And then in verse 9, he says, essentially, I want you to know I've told the young men not to touch you. More than just gleaning the edges as the law permits, Boaz tells her to keep close to his women servants and to glean with them as an equal. And finally, Boaz tells Ruth to drink whenever she's thirsty, which is more than generous, and that she should get water from what the men had drawn, when ordinarily it was the women who were supposed to draw water for the men. Think of John chapter 4. This is radical generosity. This is a man protecting the vulnerable. Verses 10 to 13, Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, 
since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servants, even though I am not one of your servants. Ruth is overwhelmed by kindness. Have you ever felt that way? Just so utterly overwhelmed by the compassion of another, even a stranger. I have. I could tell you, though, I've never fallen to the ground because of it. This is what Ruth does. And, and even though it's more normal in that culture, it reflects this deep, heartfelt emotion. And she falls to the ground before Boaz, not in worship, but in gratitude. Why on earth is he being so kind? What does a destitute, Moabite, immigrant, widowed, childless woman have to offer this man of status? answers nothing. Now Ruth has no idea who Boaz is, but clearly Boaz knows something about her. In verse 11, Ruth learns why Boaz is treating her so kindly. And that's because Boaz has heard through the grapevine about what Ruth had done for Naomi. Now at this point, Ruth does not know if Boaz has any connection to Naomi. She only knows that Boaz knows Naomi. Bethlehem is not that big of a place after all. Well, evidently, Boaz so deeply admires the loyalty and the self-sacrifice that Ruth has shown to her mother-in-law that he extends his hospitality to her. And beyond that, and this is not just a nicety, he invokes God's blessing upon her. And he explains that in taking refuge in Judah, Ruth has really sought refuge in the God of Judah, And the God of Judah is the kind of God who cares for people like her. Ruth is incredibly overwhelmed by all of this. And so she simply offers Boaz the gratitude which is welling up in her heart. What really more could she give? Verses 14 to 16. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Notice how through each verse, the hospitality is just ramped up. Boaz invites Ruth to join his workers for lunch, treating her as an equal. And there's so much food that Ruth eats as much as she can, and she still has leftovers, which right away should remind us of the Gospels. And then after collecting the leftovers, Ruth goes back to glean in the fields, and at that point, 
Boaz reminds his workers, in case they have forgotten, do not mess with her. And instead, make her job easier by laying out some bundles for her to pick up. And then in verses 17 to 19, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. After an entire day of back-breaking work, Ruth ends up with an ephah of grain, and what that amounted to was essentially enough to feed two people for a week. That's incredible provision for a day's work. Ruth and Naomi didn't know where their next meal would come from, and now they had three meals for seven days. Ruth takes what she had harvested, and she brings it back to Bethlehem, and she comes to where Naomi is staying, and she sets the the ephah of barley on the table, and she lays out the doggy bag of leftovers. And how surprised must Naomi have been? Who in the world did you meet today? Because, let's be honest, this was the very best-case scenario for what Ruth could have brought home. Then in verses 19b to 20, so Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked And she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. As soon as Ruth mentions the name Boaz, Naomi finally understands and sees God's sovereignty at work. Perhaps you've had a moment like that, a moment where something so unexpectedly beautiful happens that you recognize in an instant that this cannot be chance or circumstance, but God is at work. This is what happens. Naomi sees it, and the natural response to that is praise, and so Naomi praises the Lord. But let's just for a moment unpack why the news that Boaz was a relative was such good news to Naomi. Remember, she had come back. She came back to Bethlehem with no one but Ruth. She left her homeland more than a decade before. Of course, she knew she still had relatives in Bethlehem, but she didn't know what standing she would have with them. She wasn't on Facebook with them in the evenings. And that was especially true when it came to the relatives on her husband's side. Would they give a rip about her now that Elimelech is dead and his two sons? There's no blood connection anymore. Would they care? Well, here's Boaz, who's aware of Naomi's situation and is taking active concern for her and for her daughter-in-law. And this is a remarkable thing. And to make it more remarkable, as the ramping up goes, Naomi reveals that Boaz is more than just a relative. He's a redeemer. Now, I'm not going to say anything today about what a redeemer is, except to say that they played a critical role in Jewish society. I'll explain next week what redeemers are and why they're significant. But for now, we simply need to know that Boaz is a redeemer and that that is really good news. And then chapter 2 closes with verses 21 to 23. And Ruth the Moabite said, 
Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. When we thought things couldn't get better, they do. Boaz tells Ruth to stick around in his fields for the entirety of the harvest, which means Ruth and Naomi will have as much food as Ruth can glean in that time. Not only should she glean the corners of the field as the law permits, but instead she should continue to follow the reapers directly. It just means there's more to pick up. And moreover, Ruth should take protection from anyone who might wish to take advantage of her by staying close to Boaz's young men who remember Boaz had said not to touch her. So all in all, what we see at the end of chapter 2 is in the midst of great suffering, or perhaps we might say through great suffering, God in His grace has granted overwhelming, overwhelming, overwhelming protection and provision to these women whom He loves. One of the major themes to come out of the Epiphany story is that God was and is and always will be the God of all the peoples of the earth. In calling Abraham out of Ur and making a covenant with Abraham's descendants, God was not damning the rest of humanity to hell. Instead, what God was doing was giving Israel a special place in God's plan to redeem everyone. God was pretty clear that He was blessing Abraham in order to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It says it right there in Genesis 12. The problem is that the people of God often forgot about that. They often felt like we are God's favorites. And that when the Messiah came, therefore, He would come for His favorites. See, human beings are really good at exclusivity. We are really good at inventing Adidas clubs and exclusive tribes and gated communities and whatever else, all which seem upright but are really designed to keep others out. They're only cool if other people can't be in them. As it turns out, God is more inclusive than we are. He welcomes the outsider. He welcomes the poor and the orphan and the widow and the sick and the disabled. He welcomes the abused and the homeless and the powerless and the oppressed and the forgotten and the forgetful and the unwanted. The message of Epiphany is that God welcomes Jews and Gentiles without partiality. Fancy word for favoritism. In Acts 10, after meeting with the Roman centurion Cornelius, the apostle Peter proclaims his surprise at that fact. And he says, truly now, 
I understand that God does not show favoritism. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Likewise, in our second lesson from Ephesians for today, the Apostle Paul says, the mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They are in. They are equal. We see this gospel inclusivity in the story of Ruth. What Boaz does for Ruth is a picture of the spiritual hospitality that God was demonstrating to this woman who was an outsider. Ruth the outsider, Ruth the nobody, Ruth the last person to get picked for the team was welcomed into the family of God. And I don't just mean that she entered the spiritual family of God, which she did, but again, we're ramping up because Ruth has the privilege of joining the family tree of God's Son. You see, Matthew chapter 1 gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And here's the thing, just being a woman and getting mentioned in the genealogy was something of note at that time. And there are four instances of that. But I want to give special attention to the two foreigners in that family tree. One is Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who by her faith in God was welcomed in. She married a guy named Salmon, and they had a kid named Boaz the Boaz. And I'm about to spoil the ending, so if you need to plug your ears, go ahead and do so. But <laughs> the other foreigner in that family tree ends up being a gal named Ruth. She's a Moabite widow who ends up marrying a guy named Boaz, whose mother was Rahab the Canaanite. And together, Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, who have a son named Jesse, who have a son named David, who becomes the king of Israel, who is the ancestor to the Messiah. The thing is that Rahab and Ruth, they are not just exceptions to God's rule of exclusivity. Instead, they are demonstrations of God's rule of inclusivity, even in the Old Testament. You see, the bar of entrance into God's family is not and has never been a particular nationality or gender or ethnicity or political affiliation or economic status, or social status, or immigration status, or generational identity. The bar is repentance and faith in the one true God. The only exclusivity, the only exclusivity which we should be concerned with is the exclusivity of the person of Jesus Christ, whose name is the only name under which anyone can be saved. God welcomes all who will turn away from their old life and put their faith in the life of Jesus Christ. Ruth was no different. The wise men were no different. You and I are no different. Dan was no different. The outsiders in our day are no different. There's room in God's family for us all. What gratitude that should elicit in our souls. And really, what more can we give God than that?